Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. My first guest today is a man who grew up with dreams of the Derby. Indeed, he's had a runner in the Epsom showpiece and his late father was a multiple winner of it. But he, in his own right, has forged a really interesting career over 17 years. Placed in a Group 1 with one of his first important horses, Festozo, in 2005. It's been an up-and-down career since then, but it's had notable high points. He's been noted as a pioneer taking horses to France and winning important group races, a lot of prize money with French-bred horses, like Robin of Navan and Fighting Irish. Knight of Behold won the most valuable Group 2 race in Europe. And this season, he took a 70-some rated horse to win a Group 2, the Mayhill Stakes at Doncaster, uh, Polly Pot, and she ran a fine race in the Phillies Mile. But he has decided to call time on his training career to concentrate on other interests in the game. Um, so he's not a loss to us. He is just changing careers rather than retiring Harry Dunlop. You're not retiring, are you? No, not at all. To be honest with you, um, I've always sort of wanted to do different things. And, you know, the training business is it's such a hard game. Um, and I admire many of my contemporaries who are doing it. Um, and there's a lot of people who, you know, will probably look at me and go, God, why is he retiring on the back of, of winning a Group 2 um, at Doncaster? But um, that was an amazing day, and, and it sort of perhaps opened up some more things to, for me. I, I was talking a little while ago about this to you, and, and we said, you're not, you're not retiring. This is it. When a trainer decides to hand in his license or her license and go and do something else. Everyone says they're retiring. If I decided not to do this and decided to do... No one's, no one's, no one's saying I'm retiring. I can't afford to retire. <laughs> well, he, well he, you're absolutely right. And, and I think with, with training, it, it is a 24-7 a thing. It is a, it's, a, it's a serious business that you, you have to concentrate on. You know, you have different angles from the business to the staff to the owners to obviously running the horses, etc., and managing the horses. Um, and I think sometimes there isn't the area to, to, to perhaps go do work for, for, for other people or other things. And that was another sort of reason that, that sort of prompted me to, to, to change tagged. Do you have any regrets? Um, I'd quite like to have had a Royal Ascot winner, I'll be honest. Um, that is one thing. And obviously a, a domestic group winner. I had one in, in France. We, we so had a go the other day with Polly Pot. Um, so yes, course there are regrets, but but life moves on, and yeah, hopefully I've done okay. Um, and I just feel that um, there are there are many other things out there that you could achieve. When you look back on it now, I mean, if if you could tell your two thousand and four, two thousand and five self something, what would you tell him? I, I think the I think that the, the main thing with training horses, and it, it, it is obviously quite interesting that you've got my neighbour Harry Durham coming in <laughs> next, who is embarking on his career. Um, I think you look at the, 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 the young trainers today who, and I'm talking obviously flat trainers, is the likes of James Ferguson, um, George Bowie, 
they're guys that have, uh, have, have basically got, obviously got a plan, but are, are trying to do something different. Um, I think with James, he you know, has horses for Australia. George obviously done very well with his two-year-old stroke older horses and just different things. And I think if you are going into it, you've got to have an angle, something different. You know, we all know taking on the likes of John Gosden, the Hannons, they, they are exceptionally good at what they do. And you've got to do something different to, to, to take note. That's interesting. Um, and I think, uh, yes, starting off, um, as as you know, we have a, a thing we have to do modules on the for the for the racing school before you start training. Um, there is a business side of it, um, and I will say that is the most crucial thing. You may love training horses; you must love staring at them in the morning. But getting your business right is is so important. Um, and I think having a, a good team around you, obviously, you know, I think you look at the likes of Aidan O'Brien. He did an interview yesterday, having won won the whatever it's called, the Futurity, 11 times. Futurity. He immediately said his staff, team, and of course he's a genius, but he has an incredible team. So I think perhaps, you know, looking back, I, I, I obviously, thankfully, my business is fine, but I think it's such an important area that people should focus on and, and perhaps work for a trainer, perhaps, you know, not a, a very big trainer, perhaps like I did, working for Henry Cecil, but for someone smaller who, mm. who has to work hard at the business um, and, and really educate yourself. Let's dial it back. You're, you're, the, you're the third son of a, of, a, of a legend of the sport, and I use that word advisedly, the late, the late John Dunlop, um, multiple classic winning trainer, one of the great towering figures, really, as, as you and I were, were growing up. Was this always your destiny? Would, did you always feel as a child that you would train racehorses? Yeah, I loved horses. I mean, I loved, loved horses, and, and to be honest, I loved, um, you know, I remember going out with sort of Miesque and, Dad had Salserville and Shadiyid and all those Sheikh Hamdan horses. Um, you know, he went through a massive time of obviously, you know, there's been some very good horses, the likes of Baid, but there was a massive purple patch. And, and Dad trained many, many of them along with Dick Hearn, you know, the Nashwans, and but Dad had obviously Erhab, um, you, you name it. There were so many of them, and that's what I sort of grew up with. But obviously, you grow up with huge success, and and it's 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 a huge pedestal to try and. Um, get to that that height that he achieved because he did. He won, I don't know, three thousand races or something. I remember when he showed us a, a, a book at home of I won this, I won that. You know, he 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 was exceptionally successful. But I think what perhaps my brother as well and I, internationally, he won a huge amount of races. And I always remember the sort of you know you've got your you know, I mustn't say like a polypop, but a, a filly that may have done very well at two. Um, and obviously you, you're going to start next year in a trial, aim for the 1,000 guineas. He was so good at sort of looking and knowing, obviously, how good she was, whether you went for an English 1,000 guineas or you, you went off to Germany or, or somewhere like that that's much easier. And he was hugely successful, especially in Italy as well, which obviously the quality of racing was no way as hard. And he made some of those horses group winners when perhaps they shouldn't have done. And I think certainly my brother and I, we, we both have done pretty well into it, much more him internationally, but the French side, for me, uh, that's probably what I, I learned more than anything else. I, I, I didn't know your father well, but I knew him well enough on a, on a professional basis and we used to talk at the races. He seemed to me very even uh, on the outside. Is that a reasonable reflection of his, of his character? He never got yeah. too high when he had big winners. And, no, uh, abso absolutely. I think you're, you're absolutely right. And, and I think um, you know, he trained for, for various people some easier, easier than others. Um, and yes, every, every sort of win was, w w w was similar, but I, th I think, yes, it's the way he conducted himself was obviously very professional all the way through. Were you encouraged to, to train? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I was. I mean, they let me get on and do it. Um, and that's what I did. I obviously worked for him. I worked for Henry Cecil for, for two years and similarly for Nicky Henderson. So, so to be honest, I should have um, <laughs> probably been more successful. OK, well, how did they how did they differ? How did it differ when you when you went from seeing the way your father did things very successfully to Henry Cecil? And he was going through a pretty interesting period in his life and career yeah. at the time you were there. Yeah. Um, it wasn't all a, a bed of roses, no, no. pun intended at, at that point. How no. did it differ? How did that experience differ for you? Um, I think with Dad, they were two different type of trainers, obviously. Um, he has a very simple simple system at home that literally was a two wood chip, chip a gallop and a, uh, um, a, and a canter. And, and there's a lot of um, you know, simple routine, simple work. Whereas obviously someone like Henry was in Newmarket, big race course gallops, um, different gallops. Um, you know, it was a very different style of, of, of training, if you like to say. Um, but both obviously achieved, you know, huge, huge results. I think with Henry, he, he was unique and absolutely, yeah, we had a, an interesting time. Um, I did take over for a little bit with Jane um, when sadly Henry was in, I think he was in hospital for a couple of months. And that was an extraordinary experience. Um, and. Yeah, he had obviously the likes of Abdullah and, and, and the Howard Wardens and, and things like that when, when I started. Uh, and yeah, things were tough. The horses weren't very well. And, and I learned a lot from it not going very well. Um, and you obviously got to keep clients happy. You've got to have winners. And, and they weren't sort of happening. Um, so I learned a lot. Um, but I think in both cases, I was probably dad had a very, very good system. And Henry, he, he did a lot of it more instinct, really. I mean, it was all sort of instinct and quite hard to gather why he was doing something. That's quite interesting. So it, it rather explains that when his mind wasn't fully applied, when he, he was unwell or he was having a difficult time in his, in his personal yeah. life, why yeah. things perhaps went a little bit awry, because you needed his own, you needed his own brand of instinct applied to the operation to make it work. Sure, and I think also with with Henry, and I, I mustn't speak out of turn, he wasn't particularly interested in handicappers, um, the good horses, and when the good horses weren't there, and they weren't really there, they were, you know, probably two or three years he didn't have them, and then obviously Frankel appeared, and I think probably Frankel is a very good example of what, what he achieved. Clearly he was very complicated. I mean, I remember we went and visited him, and he, we used to, we used to put all the good horses in the front yard, sort of looking out onto the road at Warren Place, and Clearly, they tried, and he didn't like it, and he stayed in the pretty horrible old barn, but he won every single group one from there, just because he was obviously complicated, and he didn't like to change it. And I think the other interesting thing I noticed was he used to, we always used to read about him doing racehorse gallops all the time. I don't know if you remember that. He was always doing a racehorse gallop, and, and I think, obviously, the horse was so talented, he needed to be controlled and, and, and basically learn to settle and, and, and various things. And I think... Henry obviously saw that and, 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 and knew that, that, that he was complicated and achieved what he achieved. Yeah, but one of those people who clearly needed good horses, needed excellence around him in order to really kind of get his, get his, juices, get his juices flowing. I, I think later on, obviously, I mean, he did have 200 winners or something. It was more than Martin Pipe had or something at yeah. one stage. I mean, it was extraordinary. But I think that link up with Steve Cawthon when they made the running all the time and he won all those sort of conditions races, I think. Um, but they were, were good horses, weren't they? Were they? Good you horses. Say, he wasn't that interested in playing the handicap system. Not to 50s, it didn't interest him. And I don't think he would have made them any better because it just, you know, but when, when I, I never forget going to my interview and he, the excitement, he had a metal board and going to a study and you stand behind him and he said, I've got 
20 for Ron Ascot. You think, bloody hell, you know. <laughs> I think every tra trainer sort of dreams of dreams of. <laughs> that was that. when Ascot was four days and six races a yeah, day or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So I think it, I learned a huge amount, but but perhaps in the real world of, of, of normal trainers having, dare I say it, sort of horses which don't have high ratings and things. Uh, welcome back. And one of those um, voices you just heard uh, in that uh, piece about Black History Month was that of uh, Brian Finch, the chair of Epsom Downs Race Course. He will be one of my guests a little bit later on in the show. But I'm delighted to say that Harry Dunlop and I have been joined by David Yates from the Daily Mirror and Harry Derham, who is at the other end of his, uh, of his training <laughs> career. Harry, your next door neighbours. You, you, you brought two cars up here. So with a few minus marks on our carbon neutrality to start with. But... Um, how do you feel listening to listening to your your neighbour and a man coming toward the end of his training career? No, obviously you have to be realistic that you know um, it's probably not the most wonderful time to be setting up. But I, I'm committed now and I'm very very excited about it. Um, you know, I had a few phone calls when I announced I was doing it. One from Gary Moore saying, "I always thought you were quite a sensible boy, but you must be completely mad." <laughs> um, but everyone that I have spoken to have said, you know, it will be tough. There will be challenges, but if it's something you really want to do, which it is, then you, you have to go and have a go. I thought that was a very interesting comment from Harry a few moments ago about needing a, an angle, needing a, almost a unique selling point against the sort of the big battalions, the super trainers, if you like. Mm. Yeah, it, it's, um, I think he's probably absolutely right. I mean, you know, you, when, when you're starting out, you need to try and have something that's that's slight point of difference or, um, you know, something like that to get you going. So, um, yeah, I'm sure Harry's right. We, we've chatted about it away from here uh, obviously being neighbours so um, he's given me some good advice already Excellent um, Dave good to see you, um, you. we've had a, a weekend of racing at, at Cheltenham already it seems as though mind is already very much shifting from one code to another Very much so uh, after the Verton Futurity Trophy I think mentally one gets into jumps mode and it was a the last group one in Britain was something to watch yesterday wasn't it Auguste Rodin was uh, had a, a few things to overcome uh, Aidan O'Brien walked the track before committing him uh, to take part then it was a bit of a messy race where you had three down the stand side which became four when uh, Holloway Boy went across from the far side um, in that rather dramatic fashion but he he galloped away really strongly didn't he? he's the first foal of rhododendron and of course a son of the late deep impact he looks as though he's he's going to be one of the stars of 2023 as things stand now. Aidan O'Brien had that lovely way of saying he's really a horse to get a little bit excited about. Mm. The master of the understatement <laughs> strikes again. Uh, that did strike me. He's had however many it is, 10 or 11 winners 11. of the 11 winners of the of the Verton Futurity. This is as exciting as so many of them. I never forget watching St. St. Nicholas Abbey win this race and think that that's the best horse I've seen for a long time. Harry uh, Dunlop, you 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 watch on and, and look at a performance like that. If you had a winner of a, of a of a race like that, you'd be saying he was more than a little bit excited. Absolutely, I think we jumped in cartwheels. I think, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but I think everything's relative. He's probably got others as well that that that, that he knows exactly. You know, he knows in, in the in the pecking order. Come come the the Derby trials next year, even after the Guineas, we, we'll see others that that we probably don't know about. And that's it, isn't it? I mean, th this was a big year for Ballydoyle as regards two-year-olds, Dave, about renewal. Renewal was necessary because the classic crop, Luxembourg aside, 
didn't look that special. The older horses have done their bit. And Kiprios has come along and been a shining star in that department. But he needed good two-year-olds. He's come forward with excellent two-year-olds. Yes, very much so. And, and this would have been behind closed doors, I would think, at Ballydore. This would be about the most apprehensive that they've been w with regard to let's hope that we've got a really a full house of good two-year-olds this year because you know uh, of course it, it, it's ridiculous to say the cupboard cupboard was bare the cupboard, um, is, the cupboard is, is always never, full it's always yeah, chock full it, with there's always horses. plenty in the cupboard um at Ballydoyle but relative to other years yeah this year was a a, a bit thin uh, Tuesday of course won the Oaks Luxembourg missed the guts of the flat season after that running on third in the in the Guineas at the end of April. So this was an important uh, year for them in terms of the two-year-olds, and they've got the three-to-one clear favourite for the Derby, Little Big Bear. I always get his name wrong. That's right, Guinness. isn't it? Three-to-one favourite for the Guineas. No, Little Big Bear and um, oh, and the three-to-one uh, favourite for the Derby. Auguste Rodin are five-to-one joint favourites for the Guineas. Yeah. So in terms of the the first two classics for the Colts there seemed in a, a pretty decent position. And obviously Galileo no longer with us. The importance of having horses by different stallions leading the way. Clearly not lost on anybody. A son of Deep Impact, the late Deep Impact yesterday, and a son of No Nay Never in Little Big Bear. Let's talk about uh, Cheltenham, Harry, uh, and Pied Piper, the, the winner of the big race there, the Masterson hurdle for, for Gordon Elliott, avenging that controversial finish to the, the anniversary hurdle at, at Aintree. How much do you think Pied Piper's got to keep moving forward to get anywhere near champion hurdle calibre? I think history would suggest that those four-year-olds have to significantly improve, doesn't it? Um, you know, there's been a good few winners of that race over the years that have then um, just fallen short of the top, top level in the champion hurdle. I'm not saying this horse will do that, but history suggests those four-year-olds have a pretty tough time going up in uh, class. So... Um, you know, he looked impressive. He looked in control of the race the whole way, didn't he? And he just quickened from the last to the line. But um, you would imagine that, you know, Gordon knows full well that he'll have to improve again to go and, you know, to trouble the likes of Honey Suckle. Uh, interesting horses, because he, he'd had enough racing on the flat for, for John Gosden, Dave. And, and he, he went through his, his four-year-old season, or three, four-year-old season, pretty well. I, I must confess, I, I doubted whether he could, he could build and do better still, but... This has certainly assuaged those doubts. Yeah, I, I think that that's, uh, that was a, a widely held view. Um, a mistake there, and night salute on the outside. For a moment, it looks as though things are going to get serious, but Harry used the word control, and I think that that's uh, an apposite one uh, with regard to the way that Pied Piper won this race. Of course, we've, if we talk about the, ch the champion hurdle, we've probably got the if everyone stays healthy and turns up on the second Tuesday in March, mm -hmm. we've probably got the, the strongest renewal of that for a little while in anticipation, obviously the reigning title holder in Honeysuckle, who's won the last two, and also Constitution Hill, who in terms of uh, novice hurdlers, I think was recording uh, record figures, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, and so it's a hell of a bar to attain if both those stay hale and hearty. Pied Piper's taken a step forward clearly, but there's a, a good bit more required. How do you see that that division shaking down, Harry, be between Constitution Hill and, and Honeysuckle? What are they at the moment? Six to four and four to one, or something for the for the champion hurdle? I just I'd love them to both get there in 
you know, brilliant form because so often at this time of year you say, God, that looks an excellent race in, in the spring and how often does it happen that the two horses aren't there? Um, I do always think that horses coming out of novice company, they do have to go and take another step up, you know, appreciate it, won a supreme novice by a massive margin and, you know, he looked like an absolute world beater and I know he had a year off going into a champion hurdle but it is a very different level, isn't it, when they go up from novice company to open company and um, if I was Mr De Bromhead, I'd still be happy. It's interesting that you say that because having sort of, you know, spent the last few months not looking at anti-post lists for Cheltenham and stuff like that, this week I did check an odds mm -hmm. comparison site to look at the relative market positions of Constitution Hill and Honeysuckle and I was surprised that I think Constitution Hill is, is, is the six to four favourite ahead of Honeysuckle. And you think, well, yes, of course, he's a horse who did everything right as a novice and, and it clearly has the potential sure. to, to, mm. to go places. But. Well, the numbers say, the numbers say, don't they, that Constitution Hill, if he isn't already, will be, a, will be the superior. And, and it, it, you, know, you can see that on, on the ratings and the, the manner of his victory. However, we don't really know what Honeysuckle's capable of because she's won every single race that she's contested her jockey's been content to take it up an awful long way from home is there any possibility that even if she is defeated by constitution hill come cheltenham in march she is forced to run to a higher level than she's ever been and she always to run she always gets there and strikes me like when when she gets there that she's probably waiting a fraction isn't she you know once she's won her race i think honeysuckle probably thinks i'm you know i've won now now she might not have much left but at the same time if she comes up against something even better, she she could keep finding more. You you just don't know really. Yeah, the known is that she can handle training, handle several seasons of competition at the highest level. The unknown is whether Constitution Hill can dominate a senior division as well as he did a junior division. Yeah, I'd, I'd, uh, from a personal perspective, when one sees record ratings built on wide margin victories, and of course. Um, there was the odd disappointment in the in the uh, supreme novices. In any case, wasn't there the uh, the Willie Mullins horse who um, who pulled hard and then and then came down, uh, whose name has momentarily escaped me. Uh, forgive me. Um, just those those wide margin victories that give rise to these amazing figures. Mm. I think that they're all you know they you, they need to be held up to the light, don't they? Let's talk about um, Cheltenham in, in the round this, this last weekend and, and just consider how many Irish winners there were. A lot is the answer. I mean, to what extent, Harry, does that strike fear into, into the heart of every British trainer, everyone aspiring to train winners at any meeting at Cheltenham, never mind the festival? I mean, this is the showcase meeting. You wouldn't normally expect, I mean, you'd expect a, an Irish winner or two, but not, not the dominance to this extent for not massive money either. No, but I don't think it's a shock to anyone, you know, the, the Irish do very, very well at Cheltenham and I don't think, um, you know, I don't think the last two days have, have come out of the blue, you know, they, they target these meetings uh, quite a lot and, you know, I don't, I don't think um, they've come over and everyone's gone, God, we weren't expecting that. I think it's just something that English trainers now, you're going to have to know that you're going to have winners at Cheltenham then you're going to have to beat the Irish because they clearly know that whenever they come over they're going to really compete, so... Um, if we're if you're going to have winners at Cheltenham, then you'll you'll have to beat them. Dave, should we have a look at Dad's lad winning? Let's do that. Okay, that's what we're going to do now. Um, talk me through this. Well, again, in in this, I suppose these are the sort of races that ordinarily 
you see would you would think would fall to um, British trainers. I th in just to to take Harry's point there, um, if we look at the Cheltenham Festival, if there were if if the domestic trainers had dominated. Um, the showcase meeting and then the open, sorry, the November meeting at Cheltenham. W would would that lull any any uh, home trainers into a s false sense of security about what's going to happen in March? Of no, course, course it wouldn't, would it? No. You know, so um, this was one of five winners of seven, wasn't it, for um, Irish train runners yesterday? It, it's it's a it's a higher figure than we're used to at a meeting like this. Is it a surprise? Not really. Does it change anything looking ahead to March? Probably not either. I would also say my view would be, you know, a lot of the um, Paul and Nicky and Dan and l lots of very good trainers wouldn't have had their best horses out this weekend by any means. Well, you they, know, were they were worried about the ground being yeah. too quick and then it wasn't too quick at all. Yeah, and it's still plenty early enough, I would say. So I, I, think, I think all the sort of big UK trainers won't be, you know, they're not going to be thinking, God, we've run our best horses and we've had a good beating. I, don't, I think it's pretty early on in the year, yeah. Well, Pied Piper might not be Gordon Elliott's very best horse, but he's not far off the, the best of his hurdlers. And uh, the trainer is on the line now. Morning, Gordon. Morning, Nick. How are you? Yeah, very well. Uh, how's Pied Piper? He's good, yeah. He got home this morning, and I have bought a little Thank God he got home last night, so everything's good. OK, back end of last season, did you think, right, there's a good bit more to come from this horse, or did you think, I've done really well with this horse as a juvenile? Uh, look, we thought he had a good season as a juvenile, but we'd hope he strengthened up, which he did. Um, I think he improved an awful lot. Um, but he had to improve again on, on yesterday's performance, Nick. Um, I thought he did it well. But, um, you know, to be talking champion runners at this stage, he's going to have to improve again, to be honest. In all honesty, though, there there aren't really many other options for you but to train him that way, are there? Yeah, well, you're probably right there because... You know, it's kind of hard to place them four-year-olds, you know, after they come out of their juvenile season. But I suppose the one thing, good thing we have on our side, he didn't win a grade one last year. So he doesn't have a grade one penalty. He could, he could step back into grades two and three company in different races if we wanted as well. So we have a couple of options. Is he a horse? I mean, he, he was a horse with a fair bit of experience on the flat. He seemed to take his racing well last year. Is he a horse you could be quite bold with now and run quite frequently to build that experience at senior level? Yeah, definitely. And he's a horse we will mix and match between the flat and horse with him. Um, I had him in the Cesaro region. I kind of had this race in Cheltenham in mind and the race in Devon Royals. So I said I'd skip the Cesaro region. But he's a horse who's definitely going back to the flat at some stage. And he's a horse who... You know, as you say, needs to needs to take another step forward. Does he show you the speed and ability at home to believe that that's possible? I think he's definitely improved an awful lot. I mean, look, he's he's three or four lengths to find with, with Fawan, who 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 is obviously contender really for the champion horse this year. But oh, I think I might have lost him. And a lot stronger. So, listen, we're dreaming at this stage, but it's October. Um, I wouldn't be getting too excited at the moment. OK, we're not going to get too excited at the moment. If you had horses in your yard now that really do excite you, Gordon, who's at the top of the pile? Because obviously you, you, you're looking forward to American Mike. You've got Mighty Potter, you've still door. Um, I've only amounted them, to be honest. We, we've done a lot of rebuilding over the last couple of years. We've got a lot of young horses you haven't even seen yet. So it's, uh, it's exciting times. 
spent a bit of time with, with American Mike at the, at the Cheltenham Festival last year. What a beautiful horse he is. I wondered, given his pedigree, whether he would have more scope to improve than almost any of those horses out of the bumper division last year. How's he done? You'd like to think he would. I mean, he's probably going to step him out on trip. We'll start him off and down Royal next week um, over uh, two, five minute in hurdle. But um, he looks great and we're very, very happy with Nick. So, yeah, it's great. So where do you think he'll end up then? You're, you're not convinced that he necessarily needs a great big step up in trip? No, listen, we'll, we'll find our way. As I said, it's a cobra, it's early, it's early. You know, to be thinking about March at the moment, obviously your plans and your dreams and your, you're thinking where you might go with this and go with that. But, you know, just to, to be saying anything concrete, it's a little bit early, I think. OK, you mentioned Field Door, who's in the same ownership as your, your winner yesterday, Pied Piper. Will they take completely different paths? He's going to go novice chasing, so you'll see him the next couple of weeks. Not just sure where he's going to go yet, but you'll see him the next couple of weeks go chasing. Um, we'll get he have his four-year-old around, so that that could be interesting. How does he jump? He jumps very well, touch wood. Always jumps the hurdle like he wants to defence, to be honest. And has he has he got that street wisdom, even though he's he's only four? <sighs> Look, he's got a bit of class, and I think that's what you need, don't you? Yeah, uh, jumps well, classy horse with the four-year-old allowance. Uh, and do you see him as a as a horse just for for pace for two miles at the moment? Um, look, I, I imagine we'll start him off over two. But um, no, the way he ran as a juvenile, he, he looks like he's always been crying out for further. So it wouldn't shock me if he seemed one further at some stage. Good. Gordon, you talk you talk about rebuilding. Things look pretty successful as we look at them from the, from the outside. Still, um, are, are you are you full of horses? How many horses have you got? Yeah, we'd also we'd also kicking up on, on a couple of hundred horses in the main yard, like you know. Um, but obviously, um, you, you're looking for 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 the next big horse. Um, you know, we obviously it was well uh, documented what happened. Um, uh, to me last year and then um, we, we've put our head down we've worked hard and we want to get back where we want to be so we're, we're happy where we are at the moment I mean to what extent did that affect uh, you business wise from a from a from a, a business point of view yeah, how much how much do you ha- how much ground do you have to, to get back look I'm probably not the best man to talk about business I, I love training horses and training winners at the business side I've got other people in the office does all that sort of stuff for me but um Look, it, it was it, it was we had a tough few months, and we're back now. It's all behind us, and, and it's uh, it's just to be back in Chetland yesterday, training winners. It's uh, it's a very special place, isn't it, Nick? And uh, we talk about the focus on Cheltenham, uh, the the five out of seven winners for Ireland, just at, at the showcase meeting, which is one of the lower profile meetings of the season. If Cheltenham put on a meeting just about every weekend, do you think there'd be the same interest now? From 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 Irish trainers, irrespective of think, what was what was happening, I think the wood. You know, at this time of the year, I think the wood. Um, I mean, look, to be talking about the Cheltenham Festival with, with with a lot of the horses that are there yesterday. I mean, look, we we eight or ten horses over there for the two days, or ten, or maybe ten or twelve. Probably two, maybe three of them horses you'll see lining up at the Cheltenham Festival. You know, maybe the horses of the Potemps, Pied Piper, and maybe one or two others. But I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be. Um, I would be jumping up and down and, and uh, waving a white flag or anything like you know. There's, there's going to be a lot different caliber of horse coming out over the next couple yeah. of months in the UK, and we're going to see we're going to see um, a lot of different results, you know. For sure, for sure. And and finally, I've got to ask the question. Chelna made the decision this week, and we'll talk about it later in the show to 
remain at four days for the festival. Is that is that something you a had a strong opinion on, and b something you support? Uh, I had a massive opinion on it. I definitely support it. I think four days at the moment is enough. You know, with, with the whole staff situation and everything, I think uh, to be burning people out completely, I think is is not the right thing to do at the moment. But at the end of the day, Nick, if we had a ten day Cheltenham festival. I'll be there every day and so will you, so that's the long and short of it. Welcome back. My thanks to Harry Dunlop. Harry Derham is still with me. So is David Yates from the Daily Mirror. And we are joined by the new, relatively new chief executive of the British Racing School, Andrew Braithwaite. Andrew, good morning. Morning, Nick. And viewers might be familiar with you because we've spoken quite a few times on, on Zoom before, but you've not, not been in in person. And latterly, as the not only the, the CEO of the, the British Racing School, but the designer of the prototype prosthesis for young jockey Harry Enright or aspiring jockey Harry Enright, who was a, a, a wonderful guest on the show. How's he getting on? Uh, re really well, Nick, yeah. Uh, he's working for Richard Morgan Evans at the moment, a, a pre-trainer up at Newmarket. Um, and we work with a team down in the West Country, um, a, t a team of engineers, young engineers, who are designing a, a, a much better version of what, of what we had. So once he's got that, we, we, we should be making another step forward. And, um, y you know, wonderful. We, we, we went down, actually, to the West Country mm. a couple of weeks ago. And fortunately, they're, they're based 500 metres from... Taunton Rugby Club, where the IGF have just set up a, a new hub, so we were able to go and see them, and then get straight across onto the simulators that are down there at Taunton now. So, yeah, so brilliant. Yeah. That's brilliant. For those who don't remember, yeah, Harry Enright's very much a, a protege of, of yours at the, at the BRS, and he he was sort of wondering how he could possibly end up being a jockey with with one arm. And there's a lot of people who do a lot of things in their garden shed, but th this I think is one of the most important ones. You devised a a prototype prosthesis so he could ride a horse yeah yeah we, we, we worked worked away on it and um, Harry actually came to us without prosthesis and, and was just riding just just using his stump effectively as a hand and um, you know that was that was never going to be sufficient to, to ride a racehorse so um, yeah I, I kind of you know I, I know myself how, how, you, how you use your hands when you ride so um, we, we just started really and started tinkering around and um, with a lot of help from a lot of different people event eventually we got there. You know. And so do you think he will ride in a race? You know, I think, I think the, the, the brilliant thing about Harry is he just rides really well, you know. Um, so he's got the talent of the gifts there. Yeah, and it, you know, it, was, it, was, it was a bit of a said in jest, but you know, I said to him one day, you know, one of the advantages of having no hand is that, is that you have to develop a good lower leg. And, uh, <laughs> I, but, but, but you know, there's a lot of truth in that, you know, you, 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 you ride with balance and you ride with your lower leg first and foremost and um, and Harry's got great balance, he's, he's a good size and shape, um, he's clearly very determined, um, you know, look, he's got loads, loads more challenges to overcome but um, young lad, born without a hand in Lewisham, you know, ends up, ends up riding really nice horses just outside Newmarket, you know, he's come a long way already so he can do more. Fantastic work ethic, great determination as well. Clearly, something you look for in in all graduates of the of the British Racing School. You're now in the in the hot seat. You're chief executive of what I would consider to be one of the most important institutions in in British racing. Just explain the scale of this of this operation now. Um, yes, yeah, so we're, we're based in Newmarket, um, but but recruit young people from all over the country and place them back with trainers all over the country. So. 
Yeah, I, th I, th I think we do have a huge, huge role to play. Particularly, we, we all know there's, there's challenges around around staffing and racing at the moment. Um, so our role really is to to bring people in, um, be that stepping stone, that that first point of entry, um, but then look after them really for the rest of their careers in racing, wh wh wherever that may take them. Um, and we we look to place about 150 young people each year into into yards and with trainers such as such as Harry. So. And how have you noticed over over time? Um, change in in the British Racing School. Who comes to you now? Um, well, st still a big mix, and I, th I think we we probably it's, it's hard to put a precise number on it, but we we probably have sort of eighty to hundred young people each year who are, who are always going to come. You know, they're they're, they're keen riders. They're they're but, involved in racing, and that sort of baseline number doesn't really move. That's your no, they're, that's they're your, the real your solid the key. Rock. And and then the the further you move away from from those from those young people, the, the harder you have to work really to to one to recruit them into the sport in the first place, and then two to to give them the the skills and knowledge and experience that they need um, to to do the job. So um, what what we're we're always looking to do is you know make sure that 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 core group. Keep coming, uh, keep having a good experience, and keep get, getting good jobs, um, and, and then just get better and better at identifying um, those other young people from perhaps from underrepresented groups and and, and uh, other areas. Um, but you're absolutely right. You know, we, we speak to trainers very regularly, and that's something that, being new in the post, I want to do a lot, a lot more of. But but the the message keeps coming back. You know, it's about work work ethic. It's about being prepared to learn. Um, and that's almost more important than, than than your base level of skill or experience, because the, the trainers, you know, Harry and, and his colleagues, they they can develop people. You know, so as long as we get the right people, with the right mindset, then then we're 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 ninety percent of the way there. Is that changing? Is that getting harder? Um, I, I, I'm not sure that it is. Is to be honest, um, it, you know, it's, it's it's very easy for us as adults you hear it all the time and from the generation above me particularly perhaps saying you know the young people lack work ethic they lack this they lack the next thing and um you, you think you probably if, if you're one of those people who say that you know perhaps perhaps flip the mirror back at yourself because because us adults we're the ones who've, who've brought young people into the world and and developed them they, they've learned they've learned whatever <laughs> behaviors they've had they've learned from from listening to and then more importantly watching us watching adults so um uh, you know, and I, but I think it's unfair. I think I th we see lots of young people who are really committed, work really hard, and um, you know, I'm sure that I'm sure that must remain the case. You talk about under underrepresented groups. Um, we've seen over the last two, three years many initiatives to try and widen horse racing's net, get out perhaps into more urban areas, uh, get out uh, into more um, areas of ethnic diversity, trying to attract as many women to the sport as men, how do you think we're doing as a sport? Um, we, we, we're getting there, we're getting there. Just, I, th I think it feels um, that we're, we're slightly still dragging a lot, a lot of people with us rather than um, sort of re really people really engaging with it and doing it um, in, a, in a meaningful way. Um, but, there, but there's some notable exceptions to that. I know, I know Brian Finch is com coming on later and um, we're about to run our first regional week Expanding our new market pony academy idea, and we're, and we're doing that down mm. down in Epsom. And I know that Brian and the team down there are big believers in it. And um, you, you know, I think I think we need to, as a whole sport, we need to be far less sort of in, insular and inward looking. And um, you know, trying to come up with ideas like like the racing league, which is brilliant, and they have their place. But they're very much ideas that say, come, come and look at us, come to us. This, and, and I think we we should actually just flip it on its head, and we should be 
saying, you know, what can we do uh, as a sport? We've got race courses all over the country, yeah. we've got horses. What can we do to, to go out there and make, make young people's lives better in particular? And then I'm, I'm sure we'll find that they, they come back to us, they bring their families back to us. You know, if we go out and say, what can we do for you? Um, over the next three, five, ten years, the payback from that from that approach and that attitude, I, I think, will be massive. And wasn't wasn't that one of one of the things that underpinned National Racehorse Week as well? It wasn't necessarily just this is an open day, come and look yeah. at the horse in our yard. It's right. How can we use either racing stables or race courses yeah. in particular as hubs of as community hubs, yeah. as places which are recognisable, which people actually know exist. Yeah. We just want you to know that we exist. It's yeah. quite simple, isn't it? Yeah, really? yeah, absolutely. And you, you know, when you when you you work in racing and you live racing it becomes very easy to you know everyone you know is into racing and and it it's, it's good to remind yourself every once in a while that most people's knowledge of racing it is, is is basically zero nothing you know i speak to loads of people and they say what do you do and they immediately think we just produce jockeys mm. and, and you say well now we've, we've produced the people who look after horses day to day and exercise them day to day and they, sort of, and they think and they go, oh yeah i suppose you would have to sort of get a horse fit wouldn't you if you want to race it i've not really thought about that before you know, and people. Mm. You know, that's the level of, of most people's knowledge. You know? yeah. So we we've got to we've got to get better at breaking that down, and it, and that's you've got to be out there and, and doing things for people rather than expecting them to come in and, and, and do something for us. You've also got to ensure that everybody who gets licensed by the uh, by the British Horse Racing Authority is is up to the job. Harry Durham, you have to you have to pass your pass your modules. Yep, up there up there tomorrow, uh, first week of three. Uh, so looking forward to it. Uh, and what does that entail? All sorts, actually. Reading the, um, reading the sort of plan for the week. We're, there's there's three different modules, and um, you know we've got we've got people from the BHA coming in this week. We've got um, people sort of coming in to do a bit on farriery, a bit on handicapping, all sorts of things. So. Um, I think over the course of the three weeks, there's going to be lots to lots to take in. Yeah, we talked. We were talking to Harry Dunlop earlier on. He was talking about the economics and business management of running a yard. And people think, oh, well, why does a trainer need to go to Newmarket to learn how to train a horse? Especially if you've been assistant to Paul Nichols for a hundred years. But actually, running a business is something that everybody needs tutoring. You, with a financial background, would know that better than anybody. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, consistently uh, over the years, what what people setting out on on, on the journey say. Um, the three modules, one's sort of basically about horses, one's basically about staff, one's finances. And, and consistently they find the finance one most, most, uh, most interesting uh, and most valuable because you know, people don't sit in universities thinking, I, I want to be a business person, what, what business should I set up? Oh, I know, I, you know I'll be a racehorse trainer. Um, it's about the love of the horse, it's about being around people who love horses. Um, most of them are all, all racehorse trainers are horse people. Lots of them are people people as well. But you know, lots of them aren't business people. So um, that's probably the most important module. And and I think something you know, there's been there's been discussions over the years with the NTF about how we how we actually continue that support so we we can continue to to help people get better at running businesses because you know every racehorse trainer in the country is running a business at the end of the day. Now you know quite a lot about horses. You know quite a lot about running a business. You know quite a lot about running people now. Why aren't yeah, you a trainer? We learn. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think actually, um, my wife used to train point to pointer. So yeah, I've, I've, I know. So it's, it's, it's only a hop, skip, and a jump. <laughs> yeah, I've, 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 I've had a, I've had a close look at it, and um, it's, it's interesting. We, we, we over the years we've had some instructors at the racing school, and um, they, they've been really good instructors. But you can see 
and what they're really interested in, they're really looking at that horse and thinking, oh, if I'd have trained that horse, I'd have done this, I'd have done that. And, um, and, and actually, I'm not like that. I do, you know, I stand in the indoor school. There's, there's a course just started, an 18-week course, very limited riding experience, most of them. And you stand there, and I stand there, I look at the people, and I, you know, so you just see that young lad, like, he's a brilliant shape, like, you know, he, 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 could, he could be a jockey, he could be this, he, you know, this young girl could be that. So I think, you know, I think it's about the people for me and, and not the horses. And if you're that way minded, you're, you're better off at the racing school than you are trying to compete with these guys, you know. Or to just touch on the Khadija Mella scholarship, how's that going? Is it, this, this was set up, obviously named uh, for Khadija, who, I mean, everybody knows Khadija now. Yeah. I mean, the fact that she, she's known by, by her first name only suggests that she's made the sort of impact you want lots of young people to make in the sport. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and we, we, we see to young people coming on interviews and you say, you know, what jockeys do you follow? And they, and they say, oh, I've heard of Khadija. And you think, well, you know, she, she's ridden in one race and, and won it. And there's, there's <laughs> lots of jockeys who, who, who've done a lot more than that in the sport, but, but she is, she's out there. Um, she's got a following and, and she's, she's exactly as I've, I've described, she's about giving back and trying to, trying to allow other people to have the experience that she had. And um, that's what the scholarship does. Uh, we've just started with our second cohort. Um, three off the first cohort are already either on courses with us or already working in the industry. Um, so, so, you know, it's going to work and, and actually the, the recruitment for it has been, has been really strong. Good. And I know Naomi Lawson, who's, who's basically the one who's made it happen, you know, she's only just getting started. So, yes, yeah, it is really exciting. Dave? I, I'm just interested, Andrew, to what extent there is a, an untapped seam in, in urban areas, which, which Nick has has uh, has mentioned and, and obviously in terms of ethnic diversity that goes hand in glove with reaching into towns and cities and I, you know as someone who's who's always lived in a town or city and has no background in in horse racing myself it was just something I almost like discovered and thought my god this is amazing yeah. you know um but looking at, at jockeys down the sort of down the decades really I mean uh Franny Norton obviously from Liverpool Charlie Wood was from the slums of Hull. If we go back to Victorian times, Charlie Smirk, I think, was from the East End of London. And it just seems to me that, in terms of staffing, that when I when I when I go through London on the tube and stuff, there seems to be very little um, of a of a connect with people who are doing that. There's a, a few adverts for Cheltenham and and Ascot, but I just wonder to what extent, in terms of jockeys and the of the future and staff. The, the staffing problem that we're dealing with, to what extent more progress needs to be made in that area? It, to me, it seems like there's just a, a, a massive uh, number of people out there who have no knowledge of what a, a, a fantastic world horse racing is, and, and obviously one with a, a, a very different working pattern, but one that, to, to us who work in it, it, it's odd, but it doesn't seem unattractive. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. There's there's, there's a huge opportunity there, and um, and it, and I think it would help to grow the sport. You know, uh, you know we need to, we need jockeys are sort of the, the flag bearers, aren't they? And um, we, we need a more diverse group of jockeys, really. And um, there's there's definitely there's talent out out there, isn't there? It's a it's a sporting pursuit at the end of the day. And um, it, you know, was, was 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 thinking yesterday, who are the greatest sports people of all time? And um, then that you start at the top of the list, you know, you'd have Serena Williams up there, you'd have Michael Jordan, you'd have Sachin Tandorka, you know, 
they're not all middle class white guys, are they? You know, so there's clearly there's talent out there, and and those people are relatable to a far wider range of people than than lots of the the people in the sport are at the moment. So um, we've we've got to get out there. We've got to put ourselves out there into those communities and and you know, give them access to animals, give them access to green space, give them access to opportunities that we that we take for granted in racing, but that lots of people in this country don't have. And um, you know, I think then we'll get a massive payback. And, and and on the staff point, you know, I know that there's that there is a challenge there around recruitment, but we're a tiny industry, so you know, we don't need many people in the big scheme of things. Interestingly, there are <laughs> mechanisms in place for jockeys to be recruited, come through the British Racing School, and end up doing well. There are mechanisms in place for most of racing's workforce to, to come through yeah. you or, or wherever and and succeed. Becoming a trainer is a, oh, not like that. What if you're, you're not from a, a wealthy background, you don't have a background in the sport, but you are interested in pursuing a career to train racehorses? There, there isn't any mechanism no. to do that, is there? Can no, we do anything no. about it? Um, re really difficult. And I, th I think, I think we can, as a sport, do something about it, and, and it's it's an imperative that we do. Um, you know, and we, we we've spoken before about this and and having um, perhaps some sort of centre and uh, on a track or a new market or somewhere where where trainers can set up and they can just rent one or two boxes. Um, perhaps if it's a new market, and I know Nick Patton of Jockey Club Estates is is keen on this, so that hopefully a bit of momentum will build, but. If you could rent one or two boxes and you didn't have to um, prove to the BHA that you had a big amount of working capital and all the rest of it, um, you know, you, you, you could be riding out in the mornings, you could train two horses for yourself in the afternoons. And um, that would allow a lot more people to, to give it a go and get going. And I, I think we spend a lot of time in, in the sport talking about how to grow and how to get more owners in. And you know, tra trainers are surely, they're the, they're the sales force for the whole industry, aren't they? They're the people who get get owners in through the doors and then keep them and give them a good experience and um, again if you want a horse trained on the flat and you want it to be trained by someone who's in the top 50 you know the 55 people named with joint licenses now two of them are female um, well 50% of the population is female maybe some of those females would like to own a horse and have it trained by another female you know but there isn't there isn't a huge option for that um, and, and it is it's really, really difficult to start to start as a trainer in this country, and I, I just don't think it needs needs to be. You know, it isn't it isn't the same in the states. You can you can rent two boxes on the backside in the straight, and and, and away you go, and and you can't do that here, and that's that's got to be a massive miss for for the industry. So that you are actively putting a few feelers out there. Well, we're trying to support it, and we've actually had discussions. Are you, getting, are you making any headway? Well, well, again, you know, everyone's everyone's busy. Everyone's got their priorities, um, and we just, I just feel you need you need a, a sort of body of people um, like Nick Patton and Amy Starkey, people in Newmarket who are really, you know, they're they're in a big organisation, but they're still at heart quite entrepreneurial people, and and I think if we could, if we could just get enough of us together and get something going, but. But it would also it would require some rule changes and, and some, some some amendments to, to the requirements for, to, to get a license in the first place. You know, but um, there's got to be a way to do it, and um, the sort of continual drift towards towards a smaller and smaller numbers of trainers training bigger and bigger numbers of horses. I, d I just 
you know, I don't, I don't think that's healthy for, for the sport in the long term. So. Now it is Black History Month. Uh, horse racing itself is endeavouring to widen its demographic, to broaden its appeal. Uh, in addition, um, Epsom Downs as an entity and the Derby is seeking to re-establish itself as one of the premier venues in the sport and to try and attract its largely urban surrounding population to what is undoubtedly one of the great days for all of us who are passionate about horse racing. I know a lot of people in this game, I know there aren't too many people who are more passionate about either of those causes than Brian Finch, the chair of Epsom Downs, who's been in situ for four months and joins me now. Brian, great to welcome you to Luck on Sunday. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for having me. And I think it is fair to say that you do have the time and the energy now to devote to, to what is one of your, your great passions. Why is racing such a, a, a great passion for you? It's a good question, Nick. Uh, um, I'm, I'm not quite sure where it all, how it all came together, but uh, my dad took us, as my, my younger brother and I, as kids to the race course back in Zimbabwe, which is where I'm born and bred uh, and educated. And um, he was madly keen on football. So Sundays were a football day with the family. Uh, we used to have players in the house. It, it was quite a big thing, football. And racing was his release. So he took his two boys with him. And I quickly realized I was never going to be as good as my dad. Uh, and my younger brother looked like my dad. So I kind of passed that on to him. <laughs> and I went down the racing angle. And um, I loved going there, loved the horse. Uh, I was a little kid. We'd run around looking over the fence and, and, and looking at the horses. Then you'd dash across to the parade ring and look at them there. And as a nine, ten-year-old, you dream uh, one day. You know, I hope I'm big enough and wealthy enough to, to you know, have a resource of my own. And uh, as life progressed, you know, the dream came to reality. Um, what was what was horse racing in Zimbabwe like then? How did it look and feel as a as a sport and as a, as a business? Well, very much a, a in a sense a racing province, even though a separate country, a, a racing province of South Africa. Yeah. Uh, so all the administration was very much done by the uh, uh, Jockey Club of South Africa as it was then. Um, um, and, you know, I went through the whole rigmarole of having to apply for colours and not quite have an interview, but, uh, but you know, uh, given a limited selection of colours that I could choose from, uh, provide all your financial data. It was pretty strict uh, and a very proud moment to finally get my colours in 1996. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, Borodo Racecourse still goes on today, still racing today, uh, twice a month, despite the economic challenges in the country at the minute. And um, yeah, it, it was a great day out. They, you know, it, it, you really thought about it from the previous weekend to how you were planning for the next weekend. Easter, I always remember the Easter bonnet day on a Sunday. The whole family went out. You had picnics. Uh, crowds were big. Uh, great racing. Um, a lot of international jockeys came there for some of the jockey uh, internationals. It was good racing in a small country, but, uh, but it really, really got me going. And I got to see Lester Pigott uh, ride at Borodale, and uh, he, was, he was my, the late Lester Pigott, I should say, my great hero. So, so to finally get to meet him here and talk with him and talk, uh, you know, talk about racing, and then to you know, get to see his association in person with Epsom mm. and find myself at Epsom, I, I couldn't have scripted it, Nick. Um, you know, they always say you join the dots backwards. Uh, in my case, yeah, certain things have come together in a way that I could never have imagined, and, and here I am. And when you were still in Zimbabwe, toward the, the latter um, stages of your, of your days there, what image did you have of racing in Britain? 
always followed racing in, in Britain. Uh, it was always the pinnacle. Uh, it was always the prestige. It's where the, where the sport started. You, we always thought of uh, Lords in very much the same way, uh, cricket. Uh, and Lords was hallowed ground. And uh, if I ever got the chance, I'd, you know, we'd uh, go and go to Lords one day and, and kiss the turf. Uh, same with Wimbledon. So racing was uh, very much uh, in that same sphere. And of course, football is very, very big. So for uh, a Liverpool fan like me, the mere thought of I might get to Anfield one day uh, and, and be able to sit in the stands and touch the grass was, was like a dream. Uh, but back to racing, British racing was really regarded as, as the place you wanted to be and, and, and experience racing there. And I'm lucky enough to have had that opportunity. Do you believe that that is a view that still persists around the world? Or are we running out of road? I think the prestige is still there and you see it at our big meetings um, and you see the number of internationals that come here. So, so that clearly is, is something that I think British racing can be proud of. Um, you can't create history. It's there and, uh, and we have to nurture that and, and, and progress it. But are there some challenges? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, and I was interested to hear your previous conversations around prize money and the fixture list and everything else. Those are some of the issues that I think the sport has to, has to address and address relatively quickly and accept that it's probably not going to have an immediate benefit. You know, you, you're turning a ship here. <laughs> so it's going to take a couple of years of not feeling like we're doing anything, but you'll start to see the right indicators when you take those actions. And, and hopefully you can get British racing not just being a prestigious place to be, but a place that British owners want to race because they can get a fair return. You're probably still going to lose money owning a racehorse, but get a fair return for your investment. With your years of boardroom experience, with your years in, in business and in industry and as a leader under your belt, when you look at racing's leadership, when you look at its attempt to change its governance, when you look at the conversations we've been having particularly in the last six weeks, what do you see? I see a, a realisation, firstly, uh, that something needs to change, and that's always a, a big positive. Uh, the what that has to change and how we're going to go about it is the difficult part. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the steps around addressing governance, I think, is, is particularly crucial um, because you need a central body who's going to take the tough decisions, whether they impact one party or not, uh, they're going to have to take those decisions, but take them for the right reasons and actually clarify what those reasons are. So if we can address the governance issue, first of all, I think there's a fair chance that we can, we, I'm talking about the sport here, yeah. can get it to, to change direction. So you're involved with a race course, you're involved with a major race course. Now you are a non-executive sure. chair. You're not an executive chair, you're a non-executive chair, which make that point quite clearly. But do you believe it's right now for the race courses as a whole, particularly the senior race courses, to take a step back and say, to an extent, we need to take our medicine for a little bit in order to, to, to grow the sport. I think based on conversations you've probably had with uh, people like uh, Nevin Truesdale, Chief Executive, uh, Sandy Dudgeon, the Senior Steward of the Jockey Club, there is a recognition that whatever fix has to, that will have to happen will come with some pain. Mm -hmm. So I think that recognition is there. The question is, so what is it exactly that we're going to do? Because, and I think that's because the work piling that's it higher and higher and higher and higher isn't a sustainable model. No. No, I don't, th I don't a, think it a, is. Do you think, do you think the sport has come round to that recognition more in the last year or so? Yes, I think so. Uh, but there's also the consequence of how, how the, the racing industry is structured and how it draws its revenue. So you realise it's not quite great to pile it high. 
uh, and continue having more racing because you're starting to alienate your core franchise, let alone the, the new people coming in. But by the same token, somebody's got to pay the bills. Uh, and that conundrum, I think, is what everybody's struggling with at the moment, is, is how much pain can we take and how quickly can we do this? And uh, listening uh, to a lot of the media commentary around this and, and, and reading social media, of course, everybody would like a drastic turnaround tomorrow. But you've got to be realistic that there's businesses that need to run and uh, there's revenues that need to, in a sense, be, if not protected, somehow uh, um, managed in, in, in a sensible way. Uh, and, and I think that's the work that the leaders have, have got to do. And, and good luck to them getting going with that pretty quickly because they do need to, to act on it. You are, you are going to be one of the most recognizable chairs of any race course in the country because you're under your auspices is the is the derby which is a race that is more talked about in terms of its of its standing than any other do you have a vision for this race and a vision for this day in your in your mind i'm four months in now nick so um, uh, ideas are plenty um, I, I was lucky enough to join the committee at epsom uh, under julia budd uh, when the, the beginnings of a five-year plan for the derby were being developed uh, there were a number of presentations done in by the executive of which the committee were, were very much involved in, building what we think the event could look like in five years' time. And what you experienced uh, in June this year was, was year one. And um, definitely some learnings that came out of that uh, in, in terms of areas that we can uh, improve on. But on the whole, I thought it was an excellent, excellent derby. Uh, you know, attendances were very strong. Uh, we tried a lot of new things in the infield to try and uh, revitalize that. Uh, obviously, it was a wonderful occasion to celebrate uh, the Platinum Jubilee of uh, our late monarch. Um, I thought having you know, the, the jockeys out the front and creating these memorable moments and, 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 and pictures, which went worldwide, I thought were quite powerful. And, um, and I've got to thank the Jockey Club because they, they released the shackles and gave us, uh, gave us some more investment. Uh, and I, when I say us, I'm talking about the executive along with the committee. And, and I thought for a first step, it was, it was tremendous. So we've got here too, we're hard at work at it already. Um, and, um, and I think you'll see some, you know, some improvement on what we experienced this year. And attendance, you're bucking the trend there. So it was quite yes. significant that Derby Day, Royal Ascot did pretty well, Glorious Goodwood did pretty well, York did pretty well. But you know, that was against the tide of, of what's happening at the moment. Are you hopeful that even with a, another economic downturn in the offing, that, that you'll be able to keep that attendance level up on Derby Day? Yes, very hopeful, uh, and I think we should plan for that. Uh, not, being, uh, not ignoring uh, mm -hmm. circumstance uh, in the economy at the minute. Um, pricing for Derby in some of our areas is already available, um, and uh, we, we're tracking that to see how well we perform. They are once in a year memorable type events. You want to go to them. It, you can go to another race meeting, but you can only go to one derby mm -hmm. in, a, in a particular year. So that, I think, is quite a big selling point. Um, it's, it's one crop of horses that will only have one chance to run in the derby. So I think we've got a few things there that we can leverage, but we're very, very cognizant of, uh, of uh, the pressure on disposable income, and we have to make sure we can provide avenues for everybody to be able to come in. Yeah. And I think this is where the infield... Uh, provides a lot of opportunity for us. There's areas that are free, but we still have to provide, you know, you know right. Uh, what's you still have to provide an experience. Yeah, absolutely. Make sure people can get bathrooms and toilets and, 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 and more, more important, safety. And entertainment. Yeah, uh, and, and that we will provide so that it's a, it's a day out. And 
And, um, so are you trying to get the hill pumping again? Yes, very much so. The hill is, is central to our strategy. The, the, the clients and customers that want to come and sit in the stands and have a, you know, a dress-up day, and we will obviously provide for that. But for everybody else, you know, the derby is your derby. The more I read about the derby, and you realize how much a part of social history it is here in the UK. It's been going for 242 years, mm. uh, and, and we mustn't lose that. So, so we've got to make sure we cater for, uh, for I was going to say king to pauper, but it, maybe that's a bad phrase. It's for everyone, basically, at the level that you can afford to, to partake in it. And if that just means I'm coming there for free, and I'm going to have a picnic, and I'll sit there and watch racing, thank you very much. Please do. It's your derby, and, uh, and we'll keep working on that. Thank you